Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. I'm thrilled that you are here. It is a tremendous encouragement to me personally, and I trust that you also will be encouraged by the ministry of the Word as we continue in Matthew chapter 5 for tonight, picking up where we left off this morning. As I told you, I didn't really intend for this to be its own separate message from this morning, but I knew that in my desire to love you, I didn't want to hold you a half an hour long today. So I thought I would be better suited to break this up. For the sake of time for this evening, though, we will uh, change our approach for the night in order that we can uh, adequately deal with these final remaining points from Matthew chapter 5, of course, in uh, verses... Um, oops, I'm in, I'm in the Gospel of Mark, actually. It was fun being in the Gospel of Mark, wasn't it? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, I looked for verse 43 and it wasn't there. <laughs> that kind of threw me through a, a spin a little bit. I thought I knew the text better than that. But um, anyway, nevertheless, um, we want to deal with the text adequately in these final remaining points in verses 46 to 48, uh, found in this last paragraph of Matthew chapter 5. And um, so we'll, uh, as you know, we normally break for our time in prayer, and we're going to see how time goes and amend that time appropriately. And we're thrilled, of course, to have the Cranstons here with us as well for their final evening. And one of the things I'm sure is the same for you that I enjoyed the most was being able to pray with them in this small setting. They've become such beloved, faithful servants in our church, and our desire is that the Lord would raise up more after them. Uh, and, and their like-mindedness uh, as they go back to uh, Ireland. But we know that this isn't the last we'll see of them. They're already planning on coming back in March, and so we look forward to that too. But we want to give you adequate time to say your goodbyes as much as we don't like to do that uh, with such beloved members of our flock. But Matthew chapter 5 We have been learning together the kind of love that we are expected to have as Christians that transcends everything that is familiar to us in the world. And it is appropriate time to be looking at the kind of love that Christ expects from us as we consider that he himself came down at Christmas in the most perfectly displayed act of divine compassion and love being born to die and having the full wisdom and knowledge of his purpose in the world was to show compassion to a compassionless world, love to a hate-filled world. And we're reminded every year then of this compassionate kind of love at Christmas when Christ was born to the Virgin Mary in a stables and laid in a manger because the world was unwilling to show any sense of generosity, any sense of grace, any sense of kindness. And of course, you remember we saw from this morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that the typical conventional, conventional construction of the nativity scene and what leads to the nativity scene is not really what the text communicates. What the text communicates is that there was no place for Jesus in the lodge there was no room, not room as in 
place, rather, but uh, or not room as in space, but room as in place. They they didn't want anything to do with this man or the woman, this woman who was conceived out of marriage. And even though she's in labor, they have no compassion to show to her, and Christ is born into that environment. And so right from the beginning, he's born to suffer, and he would love those who caused his suffering. And so if you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, and you remember that Jesus is talking about the kind of righteousness that characterizes those who belong to the kingdom of God. That's the context of the Sermon of the Mount, of course. This is... What Jesus is describing here, the new creation. This is what fruit, in keeping with repentance, looks like. Just to remind you, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But remember, this is not an adversative, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. It was just a consent to the normal course of human behavior, following suit with what we would expect, given our fleshly condition, what the world would understand and and consent to. They, They relieved us from guilt here. That's what the rabbis were doing. They were relieving the people from the sense of guilt for hating their enemies. That would seem to be natural. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's okay. As long as you love your neighbor. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, known as common grace. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus just said is that the people of God should be characterized by a love that is completely foreign and unknown by the world. As we also said this morning, it is a love that gives love to those who are unworthy of it. But not unworthy in the sense that the object of your love simply hasn't done anything to earn it or has fallen short of earning it, like perhaps maybe a child that might be born to you. That child hasn't done anything to earn your love, earn the favor of your love. The child has done nothing. The child didn't even contribute in any sense to its own birth. We know that, but we show love nonetheless. And you're generous and abundant in your love. And the world will often give that kind of love. Love to the less fortunate, love to the innocent, love to the destitute, the poor, the unworthy as a child in that sense. But the kind of unworthy that we're talking about here and that Jesus is talking about here is a love that is unworthy to those whom Christ showed his love to. (coughs) Unworthy as Christ would understand. And to to get that, you can turn to Romans chapter 5 quickly. 
Romans chapter 5. I, I love the way that this unfolds for us, how Paul develops our comprehension of how unworthy we are of God's love. As he develops our unworthiness, he, in contrast, develops more of God's love. We almost see this as sort of a weighted scale. The more unworthiness we see, the more God's love is seen. And see if you can pick up on on this formulation in verses 6 to 7, uh, 6 through 11 rather. Paul writes, For while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So we begin with the helpless condition in verse 6. You see that? We begin with the helpless condition. We might suppose there's a condition of innocence here if we didn't have uh, an informed theology going into the text, maybe, right? Of course, we know what to expect. We're familiar with the passage. We know that we're not innocent, we're guilty. And so this is developed further. Well, Christ loves the innocent, but this is innocent in the context of those who are in need because there is something beyond a mere position of innocence. Christ's love is manifested in his death because perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But then in verse 8, we go from helpless to sinners. And sinners to enemies in verse 10. And the worse we are, the more God's loving compassion and salvation is displayed. God showed perfect and complete love and mercy to us while we were helpless, while we were sinners, and while we were enemies. And that's the same kind of love that we are to show to the world. Obviously, then, as the world continues to rebel and cause us harm, we love more. In Romans chapter 6, Paul, or rather at the end of Romans chapter 5, then Paul further develops then uh, as, as though one transgression, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. 
is going to be important as we come to the conclusion of tonight's message. But, but pay attention then to verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We said this morning that we have in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, four reasons why we are called to love the world. But you understand that this love is not divorced from grace either. And as Christ himself shows more grace to those who are lawless, so also is more grace and love and compassion required of us to the lawless too. The first reason we said that was because... uh, the first reason that we are called to love the world is because loving as Christ loved is mandatory. That was pretty simple. We're commanded to love. And actually, what we see in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, when Jesus says, you, you shall love your enemy and hate, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, the, the grammatical construction here is emphatic. In other words, he he is saying, you have heard that it was said, this is your authoritative tradition, but I say to you, as in he's appealing to his intrinsic and transcendent authority. There is no mistake in the minds of the Jewish listeners what Jesus is affirming to here. He is claiming that his word has the authority of the scriptures. They would have gotten it because of the grammatical construction. And he imperatively tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is, it is a mandate And then secondly, he tells us the second reason, because we love the glory of God. Of course, we saw that then as well in verse 45. We love the glory of God. And because we love the glory of God, we love the world, even though it is lost. And even though there's a tension that exists between a hatred for a world that is an enemy of God, yet also loving the world who are our enemies because we see the image of God in them. and Because of the desire to see them reconciled to God, we pursue them with love. We show them compassion and mercy and grace. And then third, where we're picking up here tonight in verses 46 to 7, the third reason why we are called to love the world is because there is no one like him. Because there is no one like him. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, this is the problem. This is the problem with much of the world. Their moralistic standard 
comes from the world. They appeal to one another and can define themselves as righteous because of how they compare their lives with the lives of another. There's always somebody that's more guilty. There's always somebody that's a greater sinner. There's always somebody that's more immoral. And that is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. The scribes and Pharisees patted themselves on the back and accounted themselves as, as, as saved because, well, they, they loved their neighbor, Yet they hated their enemies. They hated the tax collectors. They hated the Gentiles. And Jesus said, your standard is off. Your standard is off. Your standard is no different than anybody else's. And you have to understand that this is what makes Christianity marvelously unique. Because this kind of love can't come from the world. Even the concept of this kind of love can't come from the world. It is abnormal, abnormal. As we said this morning, it's, it's alien. This love comes from the God that we worship, and there is none like Him. Love for the tax collector. Remember that they were the worst, most reprehensible traitor to the Jews. They sold their own souls to the devil of Rome for the love of money. The Romans needed these tax collectors who were the people among the people who lived with them. There's no IRS. There's no... Tax collection agency beyond these tax collectors, and how were they to discern? Because you're not reporting your income, how much they can tax. Well, they had these tax collectors who were among the people, from the people, living with the people, who knew exactly what you were making, knew exactly what you had to give, knew exactly when your ox had given birth to a calf and therefore could be taxed. And they depended on these tax collectors to fill their quota, and the tax collectors could tax, of course, beyond whatever they wanted. They sold out their own people so that they could get rich. They were the worst traitors. They were unforgivable. No one loved the tax collectors, so there's a bit of an irony here. Not even tax collectors really loved tax collectors because extortion was the name of the game. And at any given moment, you might be betrayed or tricked. You might be taken out in order that someone might profit from your misfortune. You remember, we talked about that a little bit when we were in Mark's gospel and we saw the calling of the twelve. Jesus called the disciples to himself and he called Matthew, who himself was a tax collector. And for Matthew to forsake his career as a tax collector, I mean, not only would that likely mean that there is going to be a, a price tag on his head. But he could never go back to that life. He'd be barred from it forever. If this whole discipleship thing with Jesus Christ didn't work out, there was nothing for him. He left all to follow after Christ. That was the life of the tax collector. 
But Jesus says even tax collectors would love those who love them. That's reasonable to them, as wicked and vile and reprehensible as they are. Jesus says even the idolatrous pagan Gentiles love those who love them. The worst, most unlovable people. We're to love them? Again, there is a little bit of a sense of irony here too because the Jews were actually supposed to expel them from the land of Canaan and the reason that they were here under the Roman rule to begin with was because of their disobedience to God and marrying into the pagan Gentiles and then following into idolatrous worship after them, right? But how could they love these pagan Gentiles and these pagan Gentiles who were so evil, so corrupt, so idolatrous, even they loved those who loved them, worst, most unlovable people, and were to love them. And Jesus says, don't you understand, if you love those whom you are expected to love, whom we might expect as the norm that you would love, then you're no better than these wicked, evil tax collectors whom you condemn, these these dirty, filthy Gentiles whom you yourself condemn. You're no better than your enemies, murderers, thieves, the immoral, adulterers, extortioners. They'll love someone who loves them. But loving the unworthy, loving enemies, where does that come from? Of course, it comes from God who has shown you love and kindness and generosity and gentleness and mercy while you were yet enemies. And what a tremendous contradiction, contradiction that is then that instead of love, we show hate. Instead of kindness, cruelty. Instead of generosity, selfishness. Instead of mercy, malevolence. To each other, let alone to our enemies. I mentioned to some in the foyer as we are coming in tonight that as we are driving in, it, was, it seemed unusually dark tonight with the rain and so on and so forth. And as we were driving down the road on Loyalville Road, where there's no lines in the road, no street lights, anything like that, it's extremely dark and the rain didn't help. And all these cars, an unusual volume of cars are driving by. And I told Mel, I was like, boy, there's just a lot of traffic out here tonight. I feel like this is more cars than I've ever seen. And why do they all have their headlights on? They're, they're not their headlights. I mean, that would be obvious. They're, they're high beams on. All these cars had their high beams on. I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't see where the road was to the point where I had to slow way down and pull to the side of the road just to ensure that I didn't hit them or just veer right off the road. And because the context of this message is on my heart and on my mind, I'm... I, I'm thinking to myself, love your enemies. <laughs> and then I realized that my high beams were on. 
And so that was why they let their high beams on because I had my high beams on and I didn't realize it until another car actually pulled over to the side of the road and stopped because they couldn't see. And then it dawned on me and I thought to myself, well, I am so thankful that I didn't just get angry with them and all upset and I confess to you in the past that I have. (laughs) I don't always love as I should. And these aren't even my enemies. They're just another driver in a car who probably ignorantly had their headlights on high like I did. Thankfully, I didn't get angry tonight anyway. And because that would then become a perfect illustration of hypocrisy. But speaking of hypocrisy, the kind of hypocrisy, perhaps, it reminds me of Nathan's rebuke of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Do you remember what that sounded like? In 2 Samuel chapter 12. Of course, this is uh, after... David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then she conceives. And because she conceives, David commits murder along with a host of other lies and deception. Kills Uriah the Hittite, one of his most faithful, most loyal soldiers. And Nathan says... David, there are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And I grew up together with him and his children It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then in verse 5 we read that David's anger burned greatly against the man. David says, as surely... The man who has done this deserves to die as the Lord lives. That is also a fitting illustration for us considering the rich abundance of mercy and love our Savior has shown to us yet we withhold from the world that is bankrupt and poor without God's love. What a contradiction. Or perhaps a parable of the merciless servant in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. You don't have to turn there. But you know the story in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, the merciless servant or a king A king calls to the account of one of his servants who owns um, a relatively small number of money, a a sum that is, well, certainly uh, sizable, but it's returnable. And yet, nevertheless, the king forgives him 
And then the servant goes out. Actually communicated to that you incorrectly. The servant, of course, owes the king an, an unpayable sum. A sum that is so astronomical that he in his lifetime, nor his son's lifetime, nor his son's son's lifetime could ever repay. And then uh, the king forgives him of all his debt, and then the servant goes out and throws him prison for one who did owe him a returnable son of money. He shows no mercy when the king showed mercy. No compassion when the king shows compassion. And before we get into Matthew 5, 45 and 46, or rather 46 and 47 any further, remember where we did leave off this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I want us to look at this before we address loving our enemies anymore. Because Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think we can too quickly cry, all right, uncle, I, I love my enemies. <laughs> and what we really mean is, I don't, I don't really hate my enemies anymore. Okay, I understand that that is wrong. I understand that that is sinful. I shouldn't hate my enemies and um, maybe I even wish that they would get saved. And then in the darkest recesses of our minds, we're thinking, really, I want them to get saved so that they stop persecuting me because I don't like their treatment of me. I want them to stop bothering me. And so I, I don't really hate them. And so because we think we don't hate them, we therefore love them. Oh, I love them, sure. Love serves. Love gives up its own rights. Love doesn't look after its own interests, but also the interests of others. And because of that, the world sees your love when you do that. It's obvious, it's recognizable. And remember the supremacy of the love that we've been called to, that we quoted from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 19 this morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law said. What does that mean? It means naturally. It means that it comes easily. It means it comes instinctively. It means serving thoughtlessly because, because it's what you do. You ensure that you are adequately clothed. You ensure that you have shelter. You ensure that you are fed. You ensure that you are well taken care of, that you are provided for. You look after your safety, your interests, your pleasures, your protection. That's all love for yourself. We're pretty good at, at that. Pretty good at loving ourselves. I remember Dr. Street one time telling a story of a girl who had come into his office for counseling, and she said, no, 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 you got this all wrong. And she was so sorrowful, so melancholy, so depressed, and he says, you know, I really think that your problem is that you love yourself too much. She goes, no, 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 that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. I hate myself, don't you understand? I just hate who I am. I hate the way I look. I, 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 just, I just can't get over my sin. I, I'm just, I beat myself up about it all the time. I don't like my personality even. 
I, I, I don't love myself. I just hate myself. I said, well, okay. They departed. And Dr. Street went then into the cafeteria. And in the cafeteria, he happened to see this girl, and she goes up to the salad bar, and he's watching her, and he's like, now what is she doing? And she has the, the tongs in the salad bar, and, and she's slowly turning over the lettuce leaves and the tomatoes. And she's inspecting them carefully and then putting them on her plate. Every single one. And he goes, I know she hates herself so much that she is inspecting every lettuce leaf and every tomato to make sure that everyone is sour and everyone is rotten because she, she just despises herself and wants to afford herself no good thing. That is exactly the opposite of what she was doing. She was inspecting everything carefully because she loved herself. She wanted to ensure that what went in her body was only the very best. Tremendously ironic. We're very good, much more than we'll consent to love ourselves. But we are called not to look after, again, our own interests, but the interests of others. We're called to love others as we love ourselves. And that means that biblical love that we are to have for our enemies, let alone the church, says, I'm not going to do what's best for me. I'm not going to do what's best for others. And if I suffer at the hands of men, praise God that I have the privilege to manifest his glory. One commentator, R.C.H. Lenski, said, Love indeed sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy, feels his stabs and his blows, may even have something to do toward warding them off, but all this simply fills the loving heart with one desire and aim, to free its enemy from his hate, to rescue him from his sin, and thus to save his soul. Mere affection is often blind. But even then it thinks that it sees something attractive in the one toward whom it goes out. The higher love may see nothing attractive in the one so loved. Its inner motive is simply to bestow true blessing on the one loved, to do him the highest good. I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. I cannot like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again. But I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love them all. See what is wrong with them. Desire and work to do them only good, most of all to free them from their vicious ways. That's the love that we ought to have, but the love that the scribes and Pharisees had was no better than the ones whom they despise above anyone else. Direct point of application is our love greater in any sense, than our enemies. Is that a fair question? Verses 46 to 47, as we said this morning, was a devastating insult. Jesus is telling them, if you don't love the world, 
then your love is worldly. If you don't love the world, then your love is of the world. One document from the Jewish tradition in the first century said this, if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea that is drowning, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, you shall not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not your neighbor. That was a total perversion of God's design. But earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It is the one who sees your enemy drowning. It doesn't reach out his hand to rescue him merciful. And such a one doesn't receive mercy. Such a one doesn't have the character of God. Which is going to be important. Because then certainly such a one isn't going to be declared perfect. Which is going to be a necessary requisite. The merciful see God. In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And you can't be a peacemaker if there aren't enemies. But then verse 10, you ready? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. See, if you have divine love, if you have a God-glorifying love, then you take your interests out of the equation. And how then are we to respond to that? That's the context for the love that we have for our enemies and and let that arrow find its mark in your heart and drive you to repentance because you realize that you are not like sons of your Father who is in heaven. We don't love those who cause us harm, who lie and say all kinds of evil against us, who persecute us, who insult us. We love the lovable. 
But those you really don't like, those you find annoying, we have a hard time loving them. They're ugly, after all. Their personality is ugly. Their language is ugly. So you avoid them, you withdraw, you retreat. And what does God think of that? And at what point are we going to stop talking about those whom we just don't like because their personality is so ugly and start talking about our enemies too? People who have the real means to cause us genuine harm, the kind of harm that we read about in Matthew chapter 5 in these Beatitudes, we don't avoid them. We run from them. You know, all throughout the history of the church, there's always been groups of faint-hearted believers who, who lived in isolation out of fear of the lost world. They feared their enemies. They could not see how they could possibly live the Christian virtue in the world without experiencing anguish and hardship. In fact, the Mennonites had their beginnings that way. Menno Simons, in fact, looked at this very text, the very text that we are in, and the one that precedes it. In verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the, the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. He, he read that and said, that is impossible in the world. But yet, this is mandated for the Christian. Therefore, we must live in the context where the, our experience is restricted to the Christian community. Because we can't avail ourselves to the kind of extortion that this text would expect if we lived this way in the world. And there have always been believers who have adopted that kind of philosophy, that kind of thinking. But there has also always been throughout the history of the church those who loved as they were called to love. And you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs to learn about many of them. And it is a little bit embarrassing to me, in fact, when I consider how often that we just fold because we can't even take the emotional beating. How little we know of loving our enemies. And I'm thankful that Peter and James, and John, and Timothy, and Titus, and the other disciples, and apostles, and leaders of the church had greater fortitude than you or I do. But the question still stands, if your love is no better than the lowly standard of the world, then how can we consider ourselves faithful? And then that's where we come to our surprising ending, because when we consider the standard that we have been called to, we can only conclude that we can't live that way. And that's why Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we come to the final reason why we are loved to the world, why we are to love the world, and that is because we are forgiven. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit living in us. The same power living in us that raised Jesus from the dead. We understand 
that in our flesh, it is impossible to live this way. But God hasn't commanded his people to live this way without giving us the ability to live it out. But even to the standard that shames us because we bear the full weight for living imperfectly while we hold on to our victimization culture. And Jesus says, you are to be perfect. But how in the world are we to be perfect? There is a very popular approach in evangelism that seeks the, to show the unbeliever, the unregenerate, that they are indeed lost because, of course, how can someone understand their need for salvation if they don't first recognize that they are lost and therefore they take them to the Ten Commandments and show them, walk through the Ten Commandments. Have you kept this? Have you kept this? Have you kept this? And they seek to show via the Ten Commandments that they are, in fact, guilty of transgressing God's law. And I don't want to miscommunicate that that is a bad method by any means, but I will subject to you that it is not the best method. The best method, I believe, is the way of Christ that we find in Luke chapter 10. I think this is a better way, and we were already there, of course, this morning, and you can turn there once again. Jesus is talking to this self-righteous expert of the law. Remember, that's what it meant to be a lawyer. And Jesus cuts right through to his heart by telling him a parable about a good Samaritan. This story has been reduced to a lesson about social justice, social reform, so much so to the point that whenever we see somebody who has an unusual spirit of generosity, we respond and identify that person as a what? A good Samaritan. That's right. That's right. We call him a good Samaritan. Because, well, surely that's, that's what Jesus is teaching us here, the, the, the priority to be a good Samaritan, and that is not what he is teaching us at all. What he is teaching us is the impossibility of loving as we should. The complete impossibility of meritoriously earning our salvation, keeping the law, loving our neighbor as ourself. And now Jesus qualifies exactly who our neighbor is, and our neighbor includes anyone whom we show grace and mercy to. And who are we showed to gr- grace and mercy to? Well, Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 5, as we saw, we are to love our enemies. Therefore, all are to be our neighbor. And so in Luke chapter 10, what Menno Simons was greatly concerned about because he feared extortion is actually the model of pure love. This isn't about social justice, social reform. Remember what provokes the question? How might I inherit eternal life? That's in verse 25. And Jesus replies, answering that question and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Stop there. What grace. 
I mean, surely this one who knows the law of God and has God in him would show compassion and mercy and love. Even though this man is a Samaritan, but he actually passes by on the other side. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Some have tried to conjecture why the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. Uh, They've said, well, maybe they were on their way to the temple and they didn't want to uh, touch a decayed body or risk touching a a dead body. And so they would therefore become unclean and they would have to go through the ceremony and the rituals. And so they couldn't have performed the the sacrifices that they might have needed to, especially the priest and And therefore, it was because of his desire, ultimately, for the sacrifices that he'd not be polluted and have to go into the ceremonial cleansing and so on and so forth, and that has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) These people are made up. They didn't have a reason (laughs) for why they didn't help this man who was beaten and left for dead. But then an unlikely person comes, a Samaritan. Samaritan who is on a journey, if you will, the sworn enemies of the Jews. This this man who was a quasi-pagan, quasi-Jew, this this one who denied the, the prophets, the ones who only affirmed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, therefore these are the ones who de- denied the Davidic covenant. That a king would come and a king would sit in his reign on his throne in Israel. And these were despised so much so that the Jews wouldn't even pass through Samaria, but they would go all the way around it. Way out of their way. To, they wouldn't even allow the, the dirt from Samaria to touch their sandals. That's how much they load these people. They were bitter enemies. But the Samaritan was on the journey, came upon him, and when he saw me, felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return. I will repay you. And what kind of extortion do you think that guy just opened himself up to? I mean, not, not only did he give what was his in a very dangerous environment to this man who was near death, that was his enemy, he also tells the innkeeper, in an age where there are no receipts, there's no audits, He said, whatever is required of you to make this man heal, you've got a blank check. You just write it out. Merciful compassion and love that he shows. Tremendous love and compassion that he shows. 
And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And of course, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus says, go and do the same. The verb tense is always. Why is that shocking? Because Jesus is reaffirming that we must love our enemies with perfect, inexhaustible love, even to your personal threat, even to the potential of your love being taken advantage of, being availing yourself to extortion, among other things, even when your love is manipulated, when it is unappreciated, you love and you love perfectly and you love all the time. And that begs the question then, who can love like that? Because the lawyer didn't. And that's the point. Do you love that way perfectly without any consideration for your own welfare 100% of the time towards your enemies? How can we do that? And if that's what love is, how can I possibly say that I love? And that's why it is so necessary to be forgiven by Christ and saved by the grace which the lawyer mocked. We can't do that. It's not possible. And that's the point. The standard of love that we have been called to is a love that is perfect toward our enemies, the kind of love our fairy father has for us. The sons of the father are to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect, and it's completely impossible for us to love as we should. But Thank the Lord that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, that with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What Christ demands, he provides the power to accomplish, and the impossible love which he requires becomes possible because he gives us his love. Because he gives us his righteousness by grace through faith. So our lack of love for the unlovable, even at Christmas time, reminds us our need for a Savior. Just as Jesus says in verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It reminds us of the need of the perfect righteousness of God to be given to us and that we would be forgiven by grace through faith. And then, because he has given us a helper, we have the ability to love as we should. And if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And so, we are completely responsible. We have the ability to love in a way that the world can't. Completely relinquishing our rights. Showing the kind of compassion and mercy that we experience and that no one else in the world has. And it's that kind of love that Jesus tells us will lead them to glorify our Father who is in heaven. It did take me a little bit longer to get through than I even anticipated. And so what we'll simply do tonight is close in prayer. 
and we'll fellowship in, with one another. And we'll say goodbye to friends that we do love dearly and commit to praying for them as well, their safety and their ministry in Ireland. Father, we know that, well, we know how feeble and faint-hearted our flesh can be and how easily we can be tossed to and fro and act in our own self-interest and out of self-preservation and following the world's virtue, just doing whatever is best for us personally. Rather than emptying ourselves and becoming a slave to all, relinquishing our rights in order that we might represent you and display your glory well in a lost world. And so we ask for your forgiveness for that fecalness, for how easily we fall into our old manner of life, our selfishness, We pray that you would give us more of your love and impress on us the mercy and grace that we ourselves receive and continue to receive as we also continue to sin. And that that would motivate us to love in a way that brings you glory, that you are pleased with, and that the world recognizes as a pure and alien love that comes from you. And we do pray for the Cranstons, their beloved friendship, commitment, dedication, the love that they have shown with tremendous generosity to our people here at High Point. We thank you for the time that we have had with them, and we know that your church will continue to be blessed through them as they serve you faithfully and serve you well. We pray that you would bless them. Bless our new little one, this precious family. We pray that they would represent you and your kingdom well as they return home. We pray that they would be encouraged, and we ask these things in your son's name. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermoncast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the Sermoncast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.